Uh, so this is really great, and thanks you guys for being here. Today, um, I want to talk about um, performance at an exhibition. Um, I want to start, so just to recap, um, New York City, Global City. The Global City is an is a idea. Um, Saskia Sassen, who's a professor up at Columbia, uh, sort of wrote this in 2001, and it's informed a lot of the discussions. We went over this um, in the first lecture. There's um, sort of four characteristics of the global city. Um, it's, it's a producer, services, production node, it's an economic giant, it's an international gateway, and it's a political and cultural hub. And what, you know, I'm not going to go into it again here, but basically between 2004 and 2014 during um, Bloomberg's um, administrations, um, there was this, you know, he, he was the first sort of really global mayor, uh, you know, whereas Giuliani was still a very local New York politician, Bloomberg was already sort of, as I like to say, more comfortable at Davos than the, the Bronx. And um, he brought that global sensibility to his policy and, you know, um, so New York has sort of like an, uh, become, it's sort of like a, a, a world city on steroids. And um, there's a whole bunch of stuff that, that goes around that related to um, uh, urban planning and design. Um, the aggregation and distribution of capital. Uh, if you imagine this as a as a hub on a global network of of global cities, um, and there's a sort of uh, I, I discovered the term ultra high net worth individual, which uh, is something that global cities try to attract and serve. Um, okay. Then the other the other thing I talked about that I think is important, and just very generally, is the idea that like um, art of all kinds tends to embrace and uh, re reflect the worldview of any of the world that it, in which it's created, right? So the Elizabethan worldview, Shakespeare, uh, both the design of his physical theater, the globe, and the, the, the structure of the plays themselves, and the structure of the text themselves, um, uh, reflect a sense of the world order. This is a, a, a drawing of that. Um, I throw this in here, uh, like uh, Indian classical music also tends to reflect uh, in Indian classical philosophy. Uh, so when you listen to sort of really uh, the raga-based Indian classical music, um, it's embracing those ideas. Um, and then I, you know, I put this in here because um, you know it also reflects a very specific uh, postmodernist aspects of uh, a very specific worldview uh, of. Uh, of post-war America, and, um, and we'll come back to that later. Um, one of the functions, I think, of art is, you know, I think we, I, not for debate, but I think it's both in, in, inescapably going to reflect the world in which we live, our understanding of the world. So, you know, during Newton's time, people thought of the world as a clock or a me mechanistic, and art tended to represent that. Um, now the world is digital, so we're starting to think like that. Um, but also, hopefully, art allows us to decenter our experience and see the world in a different way. Um, hopefully, it points to the possibility of other ways of being in the world and expanding our awareness of being in the world. So. Um, and that's what I think is exciting about art in general, is like it's that tension between sort of trying to examine the, the real as it is and project into the possible. Um, so this is a, 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 a chart that I used before. I actually went back, I've used this a couple times in different contexts, just sort of talking about Giuliani in 94, making you know, one shift. 
Um, and I don't really go too much into that. Um, Bloomberg, I talk about how really his first administration, I think, um, was really triage after 9-11. Um, you know, I, as those of us who were here can attest, it's, you cannot overstate the impact of 9-11 on, on the city psychologically uh, or materially or anything. It was just 2004 was we had the global economic recovery. And um, the global economic recovery um, shifted the economy in the city. The dollar was still not as strong as the rest of the world. Um, we had a lot of foreign investment, um, a lot of changing of the landscape. Um, and we also had um, a lot of changing in the artistic uh, landscape of New York City. Uh, David White had left uh, DTW, Mark Russell left PS122, Elise Bernhardt left the kitchen, George C. Wolfe left the public, and it, it really reshuffled the decks in quote-unquote downtown, and I talked previously about that, the problems of the word downtown, I'm not gonna go into that now. Um, but, so in 2004, when Elise left the kitchen, Deb Singer came in, and Deb Singer had been um, uh, a curator at the Whitney. So, um, that was sort of, so I'm so talking about sort of like the reintroduction of performance and visual art and how those started coming together again um, after a sort of long uh, trial separation. Um, so I think, I think that's actually a really pivotal thing that happens is when Deb Singer comes to the, the, the kitchen um, from the Whitney and uh, um, she really reintroduced the visual art piece. Elise was really firmly rooted in dance and I think she really invested a lot in the gallery and the visual art piece of it as well as the, the theater and dance. Um, the other thing is in March 2005, uh, Klaus Biesenbach led the curatorial team of Greater New York. I don't remember if there was performance in that. The reason I note that is because that was his first uh, exhibition as jointly appointed curator of both uh, PS1 and MoMA and it really sort of like it put his stamp on the ground or whatever um, and I also I, I mean honestly I, I don't know but I would imagine that because in that November Marina Abramovich was at the Guggenheim with seven easy pieces that was probably somehow in that milieu that's probably what brought them together I, I don't know um, and then November of 2005 also brought um, oh performance Lee Goldberg's uh, biennial of visual art performance and we'll get a little bit more into that later. Um, but that was a real um, pivot point in, 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 the, in the trajectory of, of, of the reintroduction of performance uh, in the visual art sector. Um, and at the time, like when Marina, like that first Performa and Marina, it was all about re-performance and it was still about performance in the visual art context and visual art performance and reevaluating that. It hadn't quite yet sort of moved out into the rest of the sector in quite a strong way. Um, then in 2007, I just want to say, uh, it, it sort of continues, there's a couple of things that happened in 2007. One is the Crossing the Line Festival, um, which is not directly related to uh, visual art per se, but I think that um, they're very uh, theoretically aligned with the French conceptualists, and, and, and the French conceptualists are very much appreciated by the visual art world, um, and I think that there's a sort of interesting aesthetic consonance there um, I'm not quite, you know, sure how to articulate that. Um, 2007, um, Lori Uprichard leaves Dance Space, and Judy Hussey Taylor comes. And uh, Judy was formerly the director of the Museum of Contemporary Art in Denver. She has a, uh, which has a visual art program. So, uh, <laughs> I'm, she's well versed in visual art. Um, I don't know Lori's 
uh, background in that. And then Travis Chamberlain went to the New Museum. And that's a really interesting story we'll, that we'll get back to later. But Travis um, uh, started as like the public programs coordinator in their space. And they didn't really know what they were going to do with that space. And uh, he had been actually, uh, sorry, Travis, uh, he, was, he worked at the box office when I <laughs> was at PS122. And, and then he subsequently, he started programming there. And then he went to Galapagos. And, and, and the New Museum then became a really great platform for him to bring in all these performance artists and, and downtown performers that, that, that had been outside of that. And I think one of the really interesting examples of that is Neil Medlin, who you know used to perform like at every like little collective unconscious, every little sort of dumpy, glitter-filled, you know, beer-soaked performance art space in the East Side. And when Travis booked him at the New Museum, and you know, all of a sudden, you know, what was just some crazy guy in the East Village banging a drum and glitter and, and singing Beyonce was, you you know, transgressive gender performance of, you know, meta, meta, meta commentary. And um, it really th moved him, repositioned him really significantly. And I, that's not meant to be derogative. Like, I love Neil's work. I'm just saying it's fascinating what happens when you're recontextualized in the museum environment. So, another piece of this is um, just in general. Uh, I, the, it, I, I talk about this all the time, but I feel like it's really important. Um, Harold Scramstad uh, wrote an essay in 1999 called An Agenda for American Museums in the 21st Century. And in that, he proposed that the sort of age of object collecting of the, of the exhibition was over and that it was about experience. And, and we had to rethink what the museum did. And, and I think that, that uh, my hunch is that um, I'm not a museologist, but my hunch is that that was a pretty watershed essay and a pretty influential idea. Um, recently, though, I came across a, a, a blog post by Daryl Chin, who wrote, the idea of museums as a place of contemplation seems to have become a thing of the past. The point now seems to be the creation of blockbuster exhibitions which turn museums into amusement parks. Um, which, you know, I, I'm, like I said, I'm not a museologist, but um, one thing that I reflected on is perhaps Scramstad was not necessarily pointing to performance and spectacle, just, but rather just suggesting that museums dig deeper into the transformative power of contemplative experience. Um, I, I, you know, once again, I'm not him. <laughs> but, um, and this is just some pictures of, uh, that's Richard Maxwell, that's Sarah Mitchelson, that is, I think that's seven easy pieces. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I just, you know, just theorizing here, I think there's a couple of possible factors that I'll try and touch on again about why the visual art world rediscovered performance. Um, one I think is the internet, honestly. Um, I mean, I think, you know, conceptual art, and I'll get to this later, had been dematerializing art for a long time. The internet, you know, when I talked in the first lecture about object-oriented programming, that came out of the initial impulse, that, that came out of developing the graphical user interface. And how do you, how do you, re how do you model real-world objects in a programming environment? And that sort of also dematerialize the object. And I think when the internet started to really come to full fruition uh, in the late 90s and the early 2000s, um, it really changed the way we thought about the nature of the object and the nature of the material world and the nature of, the, of object relations and all that kind of stuff. So I think the internet uh, was a big factor. Um, I think the, the dematerialization, uh, that dematerialization of the object. Uh, finance and the market, derivatives, high-speed trading. Um, we know, and I'll 
uh, that uh, the visual art market is very global, dynamic, and intense. Um, and the financial markets had changed due to computing and, and, and the internet. And all of a sudden, we had incredibly complicated um, um, algorithms and, 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 and mathematics creating enormous amounts of value quote unquote, in the markets. And I mean, if you've ever looked at the sort of, you know, at, at, at Sotheby's or Christie's or these places, like they have like units rivaling Goldman Sachs and with these enormous sort of like uh, modeling equations and stuff to value art. And, and there's primary markets and secondary markets and galleries. Offer. So, so, so they're, they're parallel but related markets. And I think the complexity of the financial services industry, the increased complexity there led to a sort of desire to have a similar sort of like aggressive uh, financial complexity in the art world. Um, social media, I think, was a, was a, was a really big thing. Um, you know, and I'll come back to that later. I think that in some ways probably led to social practice. Occupy probably, Occupy probably helped fuel the fire of, of social practice. Um, uh, and of course, all the sort of French uh, and European theory, Bruno Latour, um, and then, of course, there's the inevitable, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll get to this later, the, the inevitable sort of nature of, of the market, which is to co-opt the past, redefine history, and commodify sort of everything. Now, why does this matter? And this is the thing I get a lot. And um, one, uh, because I'm sort of like um, Christopher Columbus in the visual art world. It's not somewhere that I've inhabited, so I'm we're not a Christopher Columbus, I guess, like someone else, I don't know. Um, but um, so I often go, well, why, you, why, why does this matter? And I, I think the reason that, there's many reasons that it matters. I've previously asserted that um, the entry of the visual art world into contemporary performance introduced an art market sensibility to a performance economy that could not support it. Um, but what does that mean? What is that market? Where does it exist? And how does it differ from the performing arts? What accounts for this widening gulf between visual art culture and the performing arts milieu? And why does it matter? So to understand this, they have to go back in time <laughs> to the respective origins of art and performance. And now for an extremely abbreviated history of Western civilization. <laughs> um, So, um, okay, so here's 500 BCE, and because I'm Jewish, I'm using before Common Era and Common Era, which is just a sort of fancy Jewish way of saying, like, whatever. Um, so, so, so around 500 BC is actually like the golden age of Greek dramas is called for, is, is roughly, and this is all rough. Uh, 480 BCE to 330 BCE. And um, I think just, just a quick side note, like what we call Greek theater, it's a bit of a misnomer because Greek theater was dance, poetry, music, text. It was actually probably the first, you know, hybrid form um, <laughs> of performance. And um, the really key thing about, about, the, about ancient Greek theater um, was that it was funded by the state, the city-state, the polis. Um, the commission, it, it, it was presented as a contest. The performances were contests um, by the, you know, the city to have sort of their greatest poets sort of come up with the, the, these stories. And um, the, the, the culture of, the, of, of Athens particularly, but all the city-states, was, was that, you know, 
participation in festivals and theater was actually like an essential component of citizenship. One went to the auditorium, one went to the, 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 the theater. Uh, this was a social uh, practice where one grappled with the great ideas and concerns of the city of of the city and of the of the culture at large. One was expected to participate. One was expected to participate either as a performer or actor or writer or in the audience. And it was like a central function of sort of negotiating the social experience. Um, this is the start of the Roman Republic. Um, I put the museum at Alexandria. Um, uh, because, oh right, um, because the the word museum comes from the Greek museon, place of the muses, um, seat of the muses. But um, actually, like the museum at Alexandria is actually apparently more like a university. It was not an object collection. It was actually um, it had scholars, it had a library, um, and it was a place of discourse, not a place of looking at objects. And um, it's actually like right around the, sh from what I understand, it's right around the shift from the Roman Republic to the Roman Empire that we start to see collecting, like collections happen. And um, I was looking around and actually I found a note somewhere that um, Agrippa, who was a deputy of Augustus, the uh, Roman Empire, actually was had, had, is recorded as having said that all that paintings and statues. Apparently, Augustus had an awesome collection, and Agrippa was uh, recorded as saying that paintings and statues should be available to the people. Um, so, I think it's just interesting, like you know, that something happens here where like we shift from like the idea of the museum, this sort of very social, very civic thing, to this like, well, actually, we're going to have collections, and it's mine. Um, and then we have Jesus. So I don't know if any of you, you know, that's, uh, so that's pretty cool. And then this is really actually very important because when Constantine converts in 312, he's the, he's the Roman emperor, right? So all of a sudden you've got this huge apparatus of power, global power. And you have this upstart religion uh, that at the time is completely, the, the sort of fundamental idea is that like anyone can experience Christ. Or you know, it's a, it's a transcendent religion, right? And it's a and it's a rebellious religion. When Constantine converts, all of a sudden, and, and prior Rome, Rome 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 was like totally cool, like do whatever you want to do, just pay us our taxes and let us like extract our wealth. Um, uh, when he converts, all of a sudden, this 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 rebellious uh, sort of radical religion then becomes uh, infused into the has the apparatus of the state to enforce it. And in 325, he convenes the Nicene Council. And what happens in Nicaea? I, 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 this will, I promise there's a payoff. Um, <laughs> what happens in the Nicene Council is he gathers all of the, he, he codifies the New Testament. So prior to that, all of the texts had been dispersed amongst all different types of people. And there were many controversies over the actual legacy of, of, of Jesus and what the teachings were and what they meant and all this sort of stuff. He uses the sort of power of the Roman Empire to say, well, actually, this is the story. And, and he enforces a sort of like hierarchical narrative onto something that had previously not had a hierarchical narrative. And it was actually sort of like incredibly plastic. Um, and from there, we have the spread of Christianity. <laughs> I mean, it's just too huge to go into. But um, by 999, we have the conversion of Europe complete. And, and then we have the sort of Middle Ages. Um, and, and I think this is really interesting. It'll come back later, but I think it's really interesting because 
Um, what also happens is then um, collecting, right? Because the church starts collecting. It has collections of relics. It has collections of people start investing a lot. And the, and the, the great commissioner of great art is the church or the nobles. And you have this sort of like concentration of wealth in sort of power and in religion. And um, it sort of like puts a huge damper on rationalism. And, um, and what happens um, during this time is that um, uh, because Italy is the port up to Europe and down um, to um, the Mediterranean, um, it becomes uh, a, a, a center for the traffic in objects. Um, at first, it's like religious relics from the Holy Land, and then sort of more beautiful objects, and then you know eventually like Constantinople and Africa. And as things start going up and down through Rome, we see this sort of fascination with antiquity return. Um, and so that becomes, and I, you know, once again, I'm sure that this is NYU. Somebody here is doing a PhD on this or has studied it. But um, uh, I, 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 my hunch is that that somehow has something to do with the Renaissance. Uh, <laughs> um, and so you've got these sort of like, so now you have this sort of like concentration of wealth and. Um, these vast storehouses of wealth that are and treasures that are used by both the religious and the um, non-religious or the secular uh, royalty to finance um, ambitious civic and religious construction projects, uh, lavish lifestyles of the nobility, and of course wars to keep everything going. Um, and all this time, you know, um, collections are closed. They're not to the public. Like collections of books, collections of objects, collections of, of art, like art is commissioned by the elite and um, experienced as a supplicant. And um, during the Renaissance is when we start to see um, a sort of, or actually, sorry, Renaissance, 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 during the Enlightenment, we start to see the call again for um, collections to be open to the public. In 1743, the Medici, uh, open, the Medici collection is open to the public. In 1753, the British Museum is founded and uh, is, is, is mandated to share its collection to the public. In 1793, the Grand Gallery at the Louvre is opened uh, thanks to the revolution. Um, and, um, and we'll get to the 20th century and all that stuff later. But, um, but I just think it's really, I, I just think like, the reason I spent so much time there is that I think that like, we have these discussions now thinking they're ahistorical and, that they, and they exist now without, or maybe within 50 years. But actually, I think the origin stories of these two forms of artistic expression are very, very different. Um, I think that uh, because performance requires complex social interactions across disciplines to be realized live, and by definition requires an assembled public to experience it, the inherently social practice of creating and presenting live performance contains within it a democratic urge. It invites cultural critique, frames individuals as a collective body, and holds the possibility of transformation, destabilization, destabilization and even uh, revolution. Um, on the other hand, I think the creation <laughs> the creation, display, and appreciation of um, object-based visual art, on the other hand, traces its origins to the collection and preservation of rare or precious objects um, by the nobility or religious elite. Um, my experience of it is that art history up until recently is the history of material culture. Uh, despite the post 
Enlightenment move towards democratizing access to these collections of material objects, muse museums continue to serve symbolically and practically as institutions invested with the cultural authority to construct historical narratives. It is an apparatus by which the material artifacts of a society can be displayed and where exhibits are designed to material de materially demonstrate the financial and political power of collectors. Um, and uh, vi visual arts people know all this stuff. I'm, I mean, I'm saying stuff that they learned like in freshman year of art history, um, but most of us in the performance art never learned this, so I'm sort of sharing that for performing arts people. <laughs> um, the growth of the museum as an institution in the West correlates with the growth of trade routes and global commerce and continues along that path today. As long as there has been a market for buying and selling and trading objects, there has been a corresponding market for art. And the value of those works of art is determined by something called the art market or the art world. Sorry. And I want to thank Jeremy Barker, shout out Jeremy for turning me on to this. Um, in 1964, the Journal of Philosophy published an essay by uh, critic Arthur Danto called The Art World, um, and by which he meant the cultural context or an atmosphere of art theory. Um, and that was influencing, that influenced George Dickey's institutional theory of art. And Dickey defines an artwork as an artifact which has had conferred upon it the status of candidate for appreciation by some person or persons acting in behalf of a certain social institution, parentheses, the art world. So this is in 1964. And um, this is co-happening um, with the conceptual art. Um, so conceptual art, um, this is a quote from Joseph, I don't know how to say his name, Kossuth, 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 um, writing in 1990. Conceptual art, simply put, had as its basic tenet an understanding that artists work with meaning, not with shapes, colors, or materials. So in the 60s is when we see conceptual art happen. We have the dematerialization of art by removing the need for objects, a preference for the self-critical, and a distaste for illusion. And this is where we get that violent, violent response to mimesis, which is the basis for sort of why dance and particularly theater are not valid forms in the visual art world. Um, reacting, it's, it reacts against the commodification of art. It attempted a subversion of the gallery or museum as the location and determiner of art and the art market as the owner and distributor. Um, it, you know, you have people like Yoko Ono and all these people work that is only known through the documentation which is manifested by the work. Um, so it emphasizes that the idea is more important than the artifact and an explicit preference for the art side of, uh, between art and craft. So it's a real uh, rejection of craft um, because, because art uh, takes place within and engages in historical discourse. So uh, the reason that I wanted to went through that long history of Western civilization, um, because I think that uh, uh, what happened after the Enlightenment, uh, but, sorry, going back to that, what happened after the Enlightenment was Romanticism. And the Enlightenment was the sort of triumph of science and reason and rationality. The philosophers in France, you know, were, you know, it was a, just a, a, and it ultimately led to the American Revolution, you know, uh, the ideas of the Enlightenment. And then there was this sort of reaction against it, which was Romanticism. And this tied into the rise of industrialism and all kinds of things. But, um, you know, it's sort of Rousseau. It's just all this kind of like nature and, and, um, I, I think that you can sort of posit that, that what happened in the 60s was as, as much a romantic reaction to the predominance of science and technology in the first half of the century as the original romantic movement was a reaction against the age of reason. Um, the romantics uh, attacked enlightenment because it blocked emotion and, and creativity. Um, it sort of rejected civilization as a, you know, as a, as a structuring force. They're very much passionate about subjectivity, about their introspection, um, and um, 
and, and this is where you get this romantic idea of the artist who's totally just otherworldly and consumed by this non-worldly you know, vision and, and must follow their inner uh, drive to wherever it may take them. And so I think that the evolution of the visual art market now in late capitalism um, directly informs the evolution of the postmodern definition of the artist first proposed by uh, the romantic uh, and conceptual intersection in the 60s. The, the, you know, the theoretical position of the artist as rebel remains pretty predominant here, uh, this sort of romantic conceptual icon of the artist as rebel, um, but the world has changed drastically and so the art world's turn towards performance in the past decade directly correlates to the maturation of the global city and the totalizing inexorable market logic of late capitalist neoliberalism. This is the most political of the things. Mostly I'm very more aesthetically inclined, but, but I think it's important. Um, so uh, I don't know, do any of you guys remember Jedediah Purdy? He wrote a, he wrote a, he wrote a book in the in the 90s and got like slammed for it. He was, he was sort of branded the new sincerity. And uh, he, he went through a long period of reflection and interest. He just wrote a really interesting article in N plus one uh, called the, um, the accidental neoliberal. Uh, neoliberalism is not so much an intellectual position as a condition in which one acts as if certain premises were true and others unspeakable. It's not doctrine, but a limit on the vitality of practical imagination. Acquiescing to it means accepting a picture of personality and social life that pivots on consumer-style choice and self-interested collaboration. This is the basis of the realism so-called that is the neoliberal Trump. It implies that market-modeled activity, ticking off the preferences, going for the ask, is the natural form of life. The chief and maybe sole task of neoliberal politics is to stand watch over the market institutions, chiefly private property, free contract, and the right to spend money however one wants that give those bargains their home. Another thing that I read recently that really kind of gave me a lot to think about is um, David Graeber's Debt, The First 5,000 Years. Uh, if you haven't read it, it's a pretty good read. Uh, um, and I just, uh, yeah. That's, this is why I developed the concept of human economies, ones in which what is considered really important about human beings is the fact that they are each a unique nexus of relations with others. Therefore, that no one could ever be considered exactly equivalent to anything or anyone else. In a human economy, money is not a way of buying or trading human beings, but a way of expressing just how much one cannot do so. Um, uh, all of this, he goes on to list a bunch of stuff. Um, all of this, it is important to emphasize, can happen in places where markets in ordinary everyday goods, clothing, tools, foodstuffs, do not even exist. In fact, in most human economies, one's most important possessions could never be bought and sold for the same reasons that people can't. They are unique objects caught up in a web of relationships with human beings. The veneration of material culture through the collection of objects seems to correlate with the objectification of human beings. To privilege objects and material culture, we must by necessity devalue the human and non-material. Yet it is the non-material that persists once the physical world is long gone. The works of Homer existed before they were written down and will probably exist in some form or another long after the end of the written word. I'm not gonna beat the dead horse about that, but I think that there's like some, there's, there's actually like a fundamental negotiation that has to happen between the sort of underlying premises of these disciplines. Um, and and um, I think a, use, a useful lens to sort of look at where this, this conflict happens is to start at Performa. Um, 
which is Rosalie Goldberg's biennial uh, of visual art performance. And I, just a quick side note, um, the phenomenon of the Biennale uh, started in Venice in 1895, where one of its main goals was to establish a new market for contemporary art. So the biennial as a form unto itself is a marketplace. Um, that's its central concern. Um, uh, so, so okay. When uh, Rosalie has published uh, performance art from futurism to the present is um, Rosalie one of Rosalie's. Uh, it's a it's a very widely accepted and important work about performance art. Um, and um, when she published the first edition, and there's been several, uh, uh, I think she's up to three. Uh, but the first one in 1979 included dancers, choreographers, actors, theater makers, many uh, musicians, lots of artists who would not actually identify as visual artists. Um, uh, but were making performance and they were sort of included in the history. Um, when uh, Performa happens in 2005, I, you know, whether consciously or not, Rosalie makes a very specific choice to situate performance clearly in the visual art world. She sort of cuts all ties to everything else. Um, and, and the Performa Biennial has since become a glamorous, celebrity-driven marketplace for the international world of contemporary art, where performances by visual artists and movie stars are exhibited alongside the work of choreographers and composers whose work is deemed conceptual enough to fit under the rubric. But for choreographers, theater makers, or musicians, the festival very literally erases their identity and negates their previous cultural significance by decontextualizing them and delinking them from their original practice or discipline. The aesthetic, intellectual, and formal concerns that may have been the basis for the artist's esteem in their original context are made irrelevant under the totalizing visual art narrative of performa. The, ar the artist as rebel position that characterized visual art performance in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, which was a you know countercultural, anti-establishment, anti-commodification, became formalized, institutionalized, and was almost universally standardized into the curriculum of MFA programs. No serious fine artist would be considered legitimate without having accepted the aesthetic positions of conceptualism. At the same time, that artist and as rebel position has been commodified and instantiated into the culture at large and so into the market. A defiantly individualistic, interdirected rebel answerable to no one as they flout the system in pursuit of self-realization has become the singular definition of the successful business person. Man, I gotta speed it up. Thus, in the 21st century art world, the practical expression of those aesthetic positions has morphed. Um, actually, I'm not going to run through all that. Uh, I will. Uh, the, privileging, uh, the privileging of idea over artifact has become institutionalized. Um, elitism. The rejection of craft has become a cynical dismissal of rigor and skill and implicit devaluation of labor. The subversion of the gallery or museum as the location and determiner of art has become an implicit acceptance that the art market is ubiquitous and all-encompassing. I think of that old Visa ad. It's everywhere you want to be. Um, the rejection of the art market as the owner and distributor of art has become an implicit acceptance that the artist is inseparable from the market and even work performing the rejection of the market is measured by its perceived distance from it. Um, significantly, where most performing artists are inherently concerned with the audience, and I go back to the origins of the social form, the romantic conceptualist artist's rebel position in the visual arts is completely disinterested in the audience. The inner-directed artist creates work purely out of self-interest and in the service of self-expression with no concern that the work be legible to anyone other than themselves. Critical approbation, and I'm not making this up, like, like I've talked to visual artists who have said to me, I don't really care what anybody thinks. Um, so critical approbation and validation is conferred not by the audience, but by the art world as constituted by galleries, museums, publications, and the market. This creates an insular, self-reinforcing circle of authority where the art world's aesthetic criteria for performance 
Okay, I'll just skip that middle part. The visual art world engages with performance using a set of criteria. Okay, this is, I'm gonna, where the performance of being an artist proposing the idea of performance is more important than the performance itself. And I need someone's help. Um, I have a little scene here. Stacy? Okay. Come on up. Yeah, yeah, okay. So we're gonna do a little scene. This is an actual conversation that a friend of mine sent to me when she was in getting her MFA. Um, I'll be the classmate, you be um, me. Or, or the, you be the character, me. Okay. So you're making a quilt with ones and zeros in it. Yes. There are artists who know how to construct quilts. There are centuries of craft. Did you study any of that? No. Well, there are centuries of meaning making from the symbolism or patterns within quilting. Did you think about any of that? No. Why not? Well, it's not about like craft or meaning. It's about the gesture of women making things with their hands. Okay, but in this tradition, a meaningful part of that gesture is the skill with which women make things or the meanings produced. Well, but that's why there are the ones and zeros. Okay, why? Because I really like binary. It's a cool idea. <laughs> okay, what's cool about binary? Well, it's really interesting. You can add and multiply and divide in just ones and zeros. And why is that interesting? Because it seems impossible and interesting. In your research, did you learn any did you learn how to do any of these things multiply in binary? No. Can you multiply in binary? Yes, I can teach you if you want. I just find ones and zeros fascinating and the history of quilting fascinating. There are people who know how to quilt and people who know how to do complex calculations with binary. Why didn't you have any of them fabricate your quilt or do the math or involve them in the process or learn any of this craft yourself? Because that's not what I'm interested in. Also, I started a website for the preservation of binary because I think it's going to go away soon. <laughs> So, thank you. Um, uh, big round of applause for Stacy. Let's just talk. Get to the museums because that's what I said. Performance is that ex exhibition. We're gonna we're gonna get there. Um, you know, I've noticed my, uh, myself that I tend to lump everything together. Like we, especially like in the dance world and in the, you know, we go all oh, museums and perform rah, rah, or or with delight, whatever. But but uh, you know, upon closer examination, uh, you know, I guess I'm your average consumer in some ways. Um, they're they're very different. So um, I did a little research uh, so I could back up my my uh, you know. Uh, lived, yeah, my thesis, my lived experience. So the Whitney, uh, 1929, Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney, all of your favorite power names, um, <laughs> uh, offered her collection of more than 500 works by living American artists whose works she felt had been disregarded by the traditional academies to the Metropolitan Museum of Art along with an endowment, and they rejected it. <laughs> so she decided to start her own museum. Uh, the Whitney Museum of American Art was founded in 1930 and opened in 1931 on West 8th Street in Greenwich Village. Um, uh, I think that um, they do really interesting stuff with performance, actually. Um, I've never met Jay Sanders, but um, you know, I think uh, the Sarah Mitchelson uh, getting the, I, I think the, what's been in the Whitney Biennial has been really interesting. We had uh, Miguel Gutierrez this year, Eva, uh, Eve Laris Cohen, who's a really exciting young choreographer. Um, Sarah Mitchelson, um, her piece Four was just up at the Whitney, and it was kind of extraordinary, uh, not only because she's extraordinary, but because because um, 
as a curator, uh, they realized what they were going to have to do, and they and they and, and and it really pushed them as an institution. Presenting dance is hard. Um, it's, it's actually very hard. It has a lot of physical demands. It demands on the architecture, demands on the space, logistical demands, and they really seem to like you know. And Sarah's like demanding, right? Like, you know, she made PS122 look like the walker. She made the walker look like PS122. Like she's a, and, and, and what makes her sort of extraordinary is, is like her ability to sort of impose her will on the institution, which is, um, and, and so, but you know, Jay, you know, they were willing to like go with it and they rose to the occasion and had this sort of startlingly beautiful, uh, powerful piece up there. Um, I think when they had Richard Maxwell as well, like, like they were very, um, uh, cognizant of Richard's innovation of the craft of what he's doing, um, he's working on this book, and they pu they you know published the chapter on like how to act, uh, and that was part of you know the literature, and they had, and it was about sort of looking at him working in the space, and I think that's really interesting for an art institution to to have people actually working in it rather than just the products of the work. Um, you know, I think the, the the recent show on the Squat Theater was also very interesting and very sort of dramaturgically sound and curatorially curious um, so I think it's a, and you know they're devoted to American artists which I think is also really in, in important because performance right now there's not uh, and I'll get to this later but there's not a lot of like American quality American discourse happening honestly in performance and it's a huge problem so so I think that like uh, I, I think that's really interesting the new museum once again you know I, I I'm a little biased because I've known Travis for a long time, um, and I, I think that you know the new museum was founded um, by Marcia Tucker. She was working as a curator at the at the um, at the Whitney. Um, and uh, she opened the new museum in 1977 because she wanted to bring the scholarly practices of the more established institutions to younger artists. And she wanted to create an institution devoted to presenting, studying, and interpreting, er, interpreting contemporary art. So once again, I think uh, I just saw uh, Brooke O'Hara stuff there. Um, they did a program with Movement Research not so long ago. There, uh, you know, I think you know, uh, and the new uh, Johanna Burton. Um, you know, and I, well, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. Um, but I, they're doing some really interesting things there as well. You know, showing process, uh, asking some really interesting questions, honoring the sort of practical uh, considerations of, of of cultural production in performance forms. Um, um, what's also interesting is, is just a side note, is that in both here and MoMA, the education departments are really doing interesting stuff. A lot of those sort of edgier, more um, counter uh, strategies are happening in the education departments. Um, so the Whitney, so if the Whitney was about American artists and, uh, uh, and, and the new museum was a sort of next iteration of that for living artists, but also global. The MoMA, um, by you know, story of origin, is mostly European artists and uh, historically and also dead. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I'm sure there's lots of live ones too. But, um, <laughs> but um, with an annual, but this is, okay, so they have an annual operating budget uh, that I found estimated at 125 million. Their endowment is estimated at 870 million and an acquisitions budget in the $32 million range for the fiscal year ending in June 2012. So, so they, have a, they have a big budget. Um, and in a way, it's a global museum for a global city as defined earlier. Uh, if, you know, we talked about uh, 
cultural capital, that kind of stuff, uh, ultra high net worth individuals, so forth and so on. So for, in fact, Moody's Investor Services recently assigned MoMA an AA2 bond rating. I'm not exactly sure that what that means, um, except that it's really good um, for a financial services uh, uh, company um, and so they seem to be a, actually a very definition of a global enterprise specializing in cultural capital and asset management um, but you know that's my editorializing all of this is actually to say just that MoMA exerts enormous influence on the appreciation and valuation of art both through its buying power and we talked about the performing arts market like buying power who can actually afford to commission and buy and create value around the works of art and also through its visibility in the art market and to the general public so um, As the most influential museum of modern art in the world, more people are likely to encounter contemporary dance through MoMA than through any other access point. It's, it's just a practical matter. Like they just have more visibility than other other dance than any dance presenter. Um, so. By extension, whatever MoMA proposes as legitimate, formally, aesthetically, or intellectually, will take root in the popular imagination and in the wider cultural narrative. So how are people encountering dance at MoMA? Since MoMA is primarily interested in European art or American art that has received European approbation, it is not surprising that the list of choreographers curated into MoMA reads like a who's who of French conceptualism. Notably, notably Xavier, Javier, Xavier Leroy, Boris Charmatz, uh, Etc. Etc. Esther Solomon. Um, in addition to the French, we have uh, Swedish conceptual dance bad boy Martin Spangberg, and a, a reappearing coterie of conceptualists from Berlin and Serbian and American expats. Um, French conceptualism draws its inspiration initially from uh, the ideas of Judson and Yvonne Rainer's No Manifesto. Uh, a, a set of ideas um, from the 60s that is consistent with conceptualism in the visual art um, and also serve as de definitional, definitional text for postmodern dance. They're also uh, from 1964. Um, so this is consistent with MoMA's sort of conservative tendencies to exhibit art that reflects well-established and accepted ideas, preferably from well-established artists, preferably from Europe or approved by Europe. Um, dance at, at, at MoMA is presented primarily in the atrium, which is an inhospitable and ostensibly public space that costs $25 to access. Um, characterized by its noisiness and foot traffic, or in a classroom or under the dome at PS1 in Queens, it is often, as in the case of Boris Charmat's recent project, literally marginalized by placing dancers in corners, stairwells, and liminal spaces. When dance is intentionally foregrounded, as was the case with Ralph Lemon's Some Sweet Day project, it is still subject to the dictates of the exhibition format. Performances are no longer than 30 minutes. They're often truncated versions of full-length work. There's no lights, limited sound, limited rehearsals, and logistic challenges at every step for things as simple as allowing dancers to have water. Um, uh, it's also impossible to sort of like um, uh, introduce discourse that is generated from the dance world, but rather all discourse is dictated and driven by MoMA. Um, during the Some Sweet Day project, um, there were a number of public programs that were co-dance space and MoMA. Um, and um, if you looked at the MoMA website, dance space was never mentioned at all. Um, while MoMA was like webcasting and owning all the stuff and, and introducing their scholars into the discourse, and you know there was n no sort of like counterbalance. And I mean, when you have a basically 1.4 million dollar institution going up against 
what did I say? $130 million institution? Um, and this is where the perfect storm of economics, cultural capital, and aesthetic bias forms to threaten the viability of performance, specifically dance, in New York City, and has real consequences in the market and thus in the lives of performing artists. Case study. And this is why you're all here, right? Um, so this is Anne Liv Young. Um, I first saw her work in 2005 at DTW. It was a piece called Michael. Um, I actually liked it a lot. Um, it was loud, it was abrasive, it was brutal, it was obnoxious, it was violent, it was ugly, and it was startling. Um, and it was loud, my ears almost bled. Um, it was ugly, I think I said that already. But it was kind of like she just marshaled all the forces of the institution against the institution and the audience. Um, it was kind of startling and, and, and nothing I had seen before at DCW. Um, in 2007, she did a piece called Snow White at the Kitchen, which was a major departure from that. Um, I think Snow White had, it was uh, only two, three people. Uh, it, it, was, it was her on stage. Um, then in 2008, uh, uh, she did the Bagwell in me, which was a, uh, you know, and, and, and then um, started down this, this, this very, you know, just her on stage. And then by 2010, the, the long story, by 2010, most of the dance presenting people were done. <laughs> the kitchen was done. DCW was done. Even PS122 was done after she pissed on the stage and tried to, and made their house manager clean it up. Everyone downtown was done with Ann Liv. But in 2010, she gets the gig at PS1 and Klaus orders the lights shout, sh turned out. And all of a sudden, she's back. Um, and, 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 and the art world and the Europeans love it. Um, and I think that, the, I mean, I'm not gonna go into this now, but I think that's because there's a very satisfying, I, I think, uh, I'll talk about this next week, actually, when I talk about the American Revolution and democracy and contemporary art practice, but I think there's something very satisfying for, for Europe to only see Americans in that way that like Paul McCarthy, I'll talk about, but you know, in that sort of like crass materialist, sort of shallow, obsessive McDonald's people. And, and, it, and it's, it's about as thoughtful as thinking all French people wear berets or Dutch people wear clogs. Um, but so what I'm gonna, what I, now I've never met Ann Liv, and, I, and, and, and so I'm gonna just theorize that, but I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna theorize that, that at some point the, the logistics, the economic reality of trying to build work on the scale of Michael was probably daunting, because um, she talks all the time about the money issues. And uh, so I, I, I choose to see the sort of like latter era Ann Liv Young as a, uh, a recurring character named Ann Liv Young in a durational performance. And this character is a, is a desperate, deformed, irrational harridan who will do anything for attention or money, who has been so destroyed by capitalism and patriarchal society that she is no longer able to control herself. She is always lashing out, all unleashed id, drowning in a sea of meaningless self-help jargon, her self-hatred disguised its defiance, determined to bring down everything and everyone with her. She embodies that particular type of sociopath who is immune to criticism in that they have so deeply identified as an eternal victim that no criticism can be offered that is not yet another form of societal uh, oppression. Um, unfortunately, as with Paul McCartney's uh, W, Paul McCartney, Paul McCarthy's WS, which was a riff on Snow White, which uh, Ann Liv had done earlier, that was recently presented at the Park Avenue Armory, um, 
it's covering much the same territory, uh, and and um, you know Snow White, Disney, commercialism, blah 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 blah, and it's kind of tired, and it doesn't really offer any new insight or perspective on the reality of life in New York City or America in 2014 under late capitalism. But Anne Live Young as a as a reperformance of a long gone era is actually perfect for MoMA's collection. Um, so this is where I talk about sort of this is this is where I'm trying to tie it together. I'm sorry, it's been a long time. Like uh, how the influence of the of the museum as a sort of like arbiter of of of, of cultural uh, aesthetic uh, criteria then sort of comes back down the value chain to a to a lower, less economically empowered environment. Um, because of what happens uh, in in the MoMA context, uh, Anne Liv's cultural capital is restored. And that reintroduces her to a performance milieu that has long been indifferent, if not outright hostile to the work. She is showcased prominently in nearly every edition of American Realness, including this past January. And I'm not going to go into it. You can go online and read it. Um, and the only reason that, I'm, that this bears re-examination now is because this incident is a microcosm of the, of the crisis <laughs> facing the performance community in New York City. And there's both practical and theoretical concerns. On a practical level, there is the problem that the incident occurred at one of the most high-profile showcases of performance during APAP, which is one of the most important performing arts markets in the world. There is a problem that the showcase itself is presented as a curated public festival when it is, in fact, a marketing vehicle for a privately owned and operated artist management company selling cultural product in a global performing arts market. There is the problem that the incident negatively impacted Ms. Patek's showcase and may well have cost her future bookings. There is the problem that the producer of the showcase did not intervene and never subsequently accepted responsibility or spoke publicly to address the issue. And this is where the practical meets the theoretical. Why was she included in the showcase and what does that mean? Now we have no way of knowing why the producer included Anne Liv Young in the showcase, but one can assume there is a profit motive involved. If there is an aesthetic reason, that's a bigger problem. Because the durational reperformance project embodied by the character Anne Liv Young only makes sense in a previous New York in a downtown that no longer exists. In 2014, the character is made relevant only through the institutional power of the contextualization of the art world as embodied by MoMA. Um, MoMA director Glenn Lowry gave a 2011 TED talk on the rise of performance art, given shortly after Marina Abramovich's wildly successful The Artist is Present. Um, and in that, you could Google it and find it. Um, he makes eminently clear the institution's uh, cultural position. He brilliantly reframes Occupy Wall Street performance and, and artists generally under the rubric of creative disruption as it relates to capitalism. In the beginning of the talk, he implies that artists and activists don't know how to do anything with their ideas, but those ideas, when co-opted into the institution become meaningful and powerful. Lowry goes on to use Marina Abramovich's The Artist is Present as an example as he discusses the trend towards performance art and the rise of the individual. And this provides us a key insight from which to frame Lowry's position and that of the art world generally. Uh, the art world being this construct which assigns value. It doesn't mean individual artists. It doesn't mean individuals, actors within the system. It's sort of a, a, a construct of cultural authority. So Lowry's vision of performance art and the individual, as embodied by Abramovich, late Abramovich, is essentially an expression of unfettered free market capitalism that has little to do with actual capitalism and everything to do with ruthless corporate exploitation and privatization of public value. In his conception of society, it is the myth of the individual as rational actor in a free market that serves as the pinnacle of human achievement and the linchpin of social organization. Um, Abramovich, who is featured prominently in the ascendance of performance art as conceived by MoMA and Performa, is the very 
veritable embodiment of the romantic conceptual artist as rebel whose revolutionary stance from the 60s has been thoroughly co-opted and transformed. Uh, maybe Marina just wanted to make money after years of being a starving artist. Maybe she is, as are many uh, people of her demographic concerned with her legacy as she faces her mortality. But sadly, Abramovich's current work, enabled by the institutional support of MoMA, its trustees and curators, is essentially a spectacular performance of self-commodification. How does one dehumanize and objectify oneself to the point where the self, capital S, no longer exists but as a brand, capital B, as a mere signifier pointing to emptiness? And so too, the relentless solipsism embodied by durational reperformance project that is Anne Live Young is at once the apex of neoliberal individualism and a pathetic acquiescence to the market and masters she pretends to hate. Anne Live Young allows MoMA, and any presenter really, to create the appearance of resistance and dissent to an exploitive system while, opening, while operating in and utterly embracing that self-same system. The reason that I'm like harping on this, and why, to go back to the question, why is this important? Um, uh, well, I'm not there yet, actually. The real tragedy of the incident in American realness is that the narrative is being ceded to visual art, the art world, and its concerns because New York City's performance milieu lacks publicly articulate performance curators and suffers from a near total absence of meaningful critical discourse, and it is our own fault. Siobhan Burke, responding to the American Realness incident on Claudia LaRocco's P-Club blog, wrote, if an altercation like this can't happen at American Realness, an encounter that gets us really thinking about what is acceptable, what is authentic about clashes of ego and values and opinion, where can it happen? Unfortunately, Ms. Burke, and I talked about the global city and how uh, the demographic changes between 2004 and 2014 actually mean that a vast majority of the people, uh, a, a significant part of the population living here now has no lived of the experience of New York prior to that. So a more, di you know, the New York where you used to have like serendipitous encounters of difference, like, like there used to be more people of color, there used to be more class difference, you know, uh, ec economic equality wasn't so present. Um, there are lots of people here who have no lived memory of that New York. And Ms. Burke is among those. Um, uh, who have no lived experience of the downtown performance milieu that the durational uh, Anne Live Young re-performance points to. Ms. Burke mistakes American Realness's performance of a bygone era for the real thing, though the assumptions, conditions, and contexts have radically changed. While there still may be places in NYC where those altercations and questions can be actually happen, more realistically, the questions Ms. Burke attributes to the American Realness incident are not the questions actually being posed, nor are they the bigger, more important, and difficult questions that these times demand. And while the intervention may have been unforgettable to Ms. Burke, it was not, as she asserts, good theater. If Ms. Patek had collaborated with Ms. Young, and the disruption was done for effect, and was reproducible, packageable, and marketable as a touring show, that's good theater. If the producer was in on it, and did it as a publicity stunt, that's not theater, but at least it would have been understandable. Given the material conditions of most artists working in New York City, I'd liken that to vandals burning and looting their own impoverished neighborhood in a race riot. That a reputable critic would declare this incident to be good theater says more about the shameless cynicism of a social milieu that is entertained by selfish cruelty than the quality of the art in question. The incident, Ms. Burke's response, and the ensuing conversations in the community only confirm Alistair McCauley's observation in the New York Times that the showcase in question presents a performance milieu that has become cliquish, and that rather than enlarging the world of New York performance, shrinks it. People were outraged by Mr. McCauley's statement, but remember, 
This is the constituency that Macaulay represents and is writing for. Um. <laughs> this is the International Luxury Conference being produced by the New York Times. Remember, the boundaries between the creative disciplines of art, fashion, and technology are more porous than ever, and their audience is more global than ever before. How does the luxury market expand whilst maintaining its commitment to authenticity and innovation? <laughs> okay, so that's who Alistair's audience is, that's who his editors are, that's who, where he's coming from. To be concerned with the approbation of Alistair Macaulay is to seed the field entirely. One tangible result of the uh, romantic conceptualist artist's rebel position in the art world, this is like the upside, is that every art student, visual art student, has to participate in critique and they have to develop a writing practice. Since the idea is more important than the artifact or the object, the artist is judged as much by their theoretical frameworks uh, that they articulate as the work itself. Performance makers rarely encounter this in their training or embrace critique as part of their practice. Many are hostile to the very notion. They assert um, that I have said all I have to say on stage and feel that writing about the work or encouraging someone else, engaging someone else to write about the work or advocating for wider discourse in the field as a whole is beneath them or not their concern even though it is ultimately in their self-interest. Many contemporary performance makers have embraced the romantic conceptualist artist as rebel position, proposing themselves as defiantly individualistic and interdirected, answerable to no one in pursuit of the realization of a singular vision, indifferent to that end product's legibility to others. But at the same time, they eschew the art world's demand for theoretical explanation. So is it surprising then, when performance curators are unable or unwilling to articulate their aesthetic criteria, and artists are unwilling or uninterested in elucidating their theoretical underpinnings, and the social milieu of performance that is analogous to the art world invests no resources in building discourse that the New York Times lead dance critic would find this milieu cliquish, exclusive, and narrow? Is it a surprise that the New York Times theater writers are so rarely able to engage with contemporary work in a meaningful way? As noted earlier, the visual art market is a sophisticated global market, one with significant economic and logistical infrastructure. If performance makers really value, uh, really believe what we do is important, if we want to set the criteria by which our work is valued, if we want to create our art with more agency in our own lives and be appreciated for our skill, craft, and training as much as for our ideas, if we want to achieve greater visibility and bring our work and ideas to a wider audience, then we need to articulate its value from within our own practices and make those values visible. We have to ask the deep questions about our chosen disciplines and rediscover what brought us to this work in the first place. We need to have the difficult, public, critical conversations with each other. Uh, I'm not going to leave you on a downer note because I'm not a downer dude. Um, every challenge is an opportunity. <laughs> Every challenge is an opportunity, and we are now presented with the opportunity to introduce our values into the art world, to push back on the romantic conceptualist framework of the artist, push back against the mere appearance of rigor, push back on the disproportionate privilege of idea over execution, and propose a new, more balanced, more thoughtful way forward that takes the practice part of expanded art practice seriously, and encourages all, encourage all artists to be more curious and respectful of each other's expertise, interests, and aesthetic concerns. We can create solidarity among each other outside the market, in the human economy, where human capital comes first, and our return on investment is a better world. Um, so how can we change the way we think to influence the way we are in the world to create wider systemic change? And that is uh, what I'll leave you with. Thank you very much. I ran way over, and uh, democracy next week. Thanks. <laughs>